I had the privilege on Monday evening of working in the call center, not knowing what to expect when I got there, but finding everything to be really, really well organized and really quite a delightful time to put on my headset and dial the phone number and get hung up on and and then uh, dial another one and get hung up on and then dial another one and somebody wanted to talk to me. And I had some really, really nice conversations. I found people to be quite friendly. Had the privilege of having a number of people say yes, they would like more information about Summit Bible Church. And so if you are scheduled to work in the call center and you're really nervous about what it's like, I've survived it, and I can tell you it's really, it's actually, I enjoyed the evening. The weirdest part of all was there were nine of us, we were all sitting there, and people were dialing, busily dialing away, and you have a headset on, so you can't really hear anybody dialing. You just know they're dialing. And we must have been hitting voice uh, answering machines and, or wrong num- bad numbers, whatever it was, because it was pure silence. And then finally, someone started speaking. And that broke the ice. And after that, there were times when there were all nine of us involved in conversations simultaneously. It was cool. So I recommend it to you. There are 20 slots open. Don't miss it. If you miss it, you'll regret it. How's that? You'll regret it. It's been great working with the team at Summit Bible Church. Busily working away, canvassing the neighborhoods of 92336 in North Fontana turning over rocks, seeing who the Lord might have out there, that by divine appointment we show up at their doorstep and talk to them. Talk to them about church, their experiences with church. What do they think is one of the greatest needs of the community? That's been one of my favorite questions to ask. It's really enlightening. To say to people, what do you think is one of the greatest needs of the community of Fontana? And almost invariably, I have heard the same response over and over again. People have responded to me, a lack of community. A lack of community. They don't know their neighbors. (laughs) After about three houses in a row where they said that exactly to me, we don't know any of our neighbors. I said, you know, it's really funny because your neighbor just said the same thing. And I have their name right here, so if you'd like, I'd be happy to introduce you. (laughs) That's the world we live in, isn't it? We live in a world that is in touch with one another at an unprecedented level of connectivity. I just read yesterday, I think it was, that Facebook now has a half a billion subscribers a half a billion subscribers. So that online social network called Facebook, a half a billion people now have Facebook accounts. I have one too, by the way. And you, you go to their profile and you look and it lists how many friends they have. I don't know yet whether it's like a status. Maybe it's a status thing to have the most friends. Is that true? Is that a status deal? Yeah, it is. I knew it was. 1,232 friends. Wrong. (laughs) Nobody has that many friends. So we live in this time, isn't it true? We just have this 
connectivity. You, it's up to the minute. Everything's instant. And yet, relationally, people, I think, are more separated and more lonely than perhaps any time in human history. This came crashing in on me just a few days ago. It was early in the morning. I was sitting out on my patio. The sun hadn't even risen yet. Delightful time to be out there. Quiet. And I began to think about my neighborhood and how many of my neighbors that I really know. Do I even know their names? And I had to conclude that I really don't. That for most of the people that live on the street that I live on, I don't even know their names. We wave when we drive by each other. They wave, I wave. Car pulls into the, you know, you push the button, door goes up, into the garage, down goes the door, right? And into your house. And then I thought about the people out behind us, over the wall, over the fence. And I thought, not only do I not even know their names, I don't even know what they look like. I've never seen them in my whole life. And they only live about 60 feet from me. What a world we live in. We're densely packed together like too many rats in the same cage. And yet we don't really know anybody. If we don't know them, how are we going to love them? How different it is, by the way, than where I grew up. Now, I grew up in a small town in the country, admittedly. By the way, there were no fences. I don't think it was necessarily a town ordinance But if you were to put up a fence, you would be ostracized. So there were no fences. Everybody's yard was one large playground. We would have sports games, football games that would go from backyard to backyard. How different. How different from where you and I live today. How cut off we are. How isolated we really are. How lonely. How lonely. Many of us really are. Open your Bibles up to the 13th chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Romans 13, page 1137, by the way, if you're using a pew Bible. We are continuing our study of Christian citizenship as given to us by the Apostle Paul in chapter 13. We're turning a corner this morning in that we are moving out of our discussion of the relationship of the Christian to the state. We finished that last week with an exhortation that we needed to pray for those in authority over us. So we're moving beyond how we relate to the state. We're picking it up in verse 8 this morning. And we're dealing with really the next major segment of the chapter, verses 8 through 10. And that is, as Christian citizens, there's a mandate to love our neighbors. That's the big idea. Actually, the whole chapter, 1 to 7, value your government. 8 to 10, love your neighbors. 11 to 14, next week, restrain your flesh. And and these are Paul's injunctions to us in terms of our Christian citizenship. What does it mean to live a transformed life in a fallen world? Submit to your government. Love your neighbors, restrain your flesh. That's what it means. 
Today, it's to love your neighbors. Look at verse 8. Paul says, Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So we look at this section together this morning. There are really three life-changing statements that Paul has for us packed into these few verses. Three life-changing statements about loving your neighbor that we need to, by the grace of God, get a hold of and begin to implement in our lives. Why? So that we might begin to radically express our Christianity. That the transformation of our hearts and minds brought about by the Spirit of God through the power of the Gospel might begin to shine out into a world that is desperate for relation, for love. So we begin here in verse 8 with the first life-changing statement. And by the way, it's available to you on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along. The first life-changing statement here is that love is required of us. Love is required, not optional, required. Paul has completed here, verses 6 and 7, his statement with regard to the relationship of the Christian to the state, the civil authorities, with a couple of reminders to us. There in verse 7, he summarizes it, render to all what is due them. Do you see that? The obligation. It's due them. What is it that's due? What do we as followers of Jesus Christ owe to? What is our obligation to governing authorities, civil authorities? We know there were two of them there, right? First, take a look at it. It's to pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Secondly, beyond that, it is to to honor them, to render respect to those who are in authority over us because God has placed them there. Paul transitions now, verse 8, from this idea about paying our obligations to speaking of another obligation that cannot be repaid. It's fascinating. With regard to your taxes, what Paul says is, pay them, write the check to the IRS, and you will extinguish the obligation. It can be paid off should be paid off with regard to those in authority over you civil authorities you can fulfill your obligation to them by simply doing what respecting them honoring them that fulfills your obligation you're no longer in debt to do that but when it comes to loving other people what paul says is we are never free from their claim upon us we are, we are never able to discharge this debt. Love is required of us. I'm breaking it down for you into, into two ways to see that. Love is required of us because it's a debt, the first part of verse 8. 
Love is required of us because it's a duty, second part of verse 8. So love is required because it's a debt and a duty. Let's look at it first as a debt. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. In contrast to taxes, in contrast to honor and respect, those you can discharge by fulfilling your obligations. Here, you can't. You have a continual debt that you can never pay off. By the way, some Christians read this first part of verse 8, and they find here a prohibition against borrowing money. Oh, nothing to anyone. See, Paul says we're not to borrow any money. This is the wrong Wrong place to be for that doctrine, okay? This is not a discussion of one's personal borrowing habits. This is a discussion in context of a passage not dealing with personal finances, but with dealing with relationships. We're talking about relationships here, not money. Paul has used the idea of the obligation from verse 7 to bridge into verse 8. But this is not a money passage. This is a passage about personal relations. And what Paul says here, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, is to say that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, are universally obligated to all people. Take a look at it. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor. He just continues to broaden this out so that it sweeps up everybody. What Paul's saying is that We have an obligation not just to love those who love us back, not just to love those to whom we're related by by blood or or marriage or even within the body by spiritual union. Our obligation to love people goes wider than that. We're obligated to love because they are made in the image of God. They bear the imago dei, the very image of the Creator stamped on their soul. We're to love them, he says. Beyond that, it's an unending debt. We see that, by the way, in how this is constructed. Oh, nothing to anyone except, do you see the exception? Except to love one another. That is, this obligation remains outstanding. This is an obligation you can't pay off. It's all right, if I can say it that way, to continue to owe a debt of love. That's the way God has set it up. A couple of months ago, I refinanced my house. Interest rates are down. It seemed like a good opportunity to do so. And so Carol and I, we refinanced the home. This is typical when you either purchase a home or refinance a home. They bring out the loan documents, right? You read through the loan documents. They contain all kinds of things that nobody ever reads. Because we wouldn't understand if we read it anyway. But we just get to the material point. How much do I owe? How much is the monthly payment? And when will it be paid off, right? That's what we concern ourselves with. Because even with home mortgages, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, at least theoretically, that someday you'll actually pay that thing off. If you live that long. But with regard to the debt, the obligation to love other people never gets paid off. How much do I owe? You owe love to them. Wow, that's a lot. When will it be done being paid for? When you're dead. When you're dead. That's a long time. Yeah, it is. It is. 
See, beloved, this obligation to love people, we make payments on it, but we never pay it off. There's no bankruptcy to discharge it. It sits upon us. It, it weighs upon us. Why? Because God has put it there by virtue of Him redeeming us. God loves. Therefore, those who are made in His image and recreated in His image through Jesus Christ are to demonstrate His character. It is the character of love. Therefore, we must love. It's really who we are in Christ. So we can never, ever pay it off. There's never a time when you can say, I don't need to love people anymore because I've loved long enough, deep enough, far enough, hard enough, effectively enough, I'm done. Even though it feels like sometimes you'd like to do that, right? I'm not going to love anybody anymore. I'm going to go out on my patio and put my feet up and shut out the world. You can't. You can't. Make regular payments on this debt, but you can never extinguish it. It is required of us. It is a debt. Beyond that's a duty. Look at the end of verse 8. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Oh, here comes the law again. Paul keeps bringing the law back up again. What are we to make of this? Well, let me condense a, a big discussion down to some small points here. The signifying feature of the new covenant is the coming of the Spirit of God. We see it at Pentecost, right? The Spirit comes at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. This is the coming coming of the new covenant. He is the one who brings it in. The new covenant in Christ's blood. One of the identifying marks of the new covenant, according to the prophets, Jeremiah chapter 31, you can write these down, check them on your own. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, two classic Old Testament passages with regard to the coming of the new covenant. It is the age of the spirit and it is the age in which the law no longer stands on tablets of stone, but is now written where? Talk to me, where? In our hearts. That's right. It is written in our hearts. It's now inside us. And we are empowered and motivated to live according to the law of God that is now written in our hearts by virtue of the indwelling presence of who? The Spirit of God Himself. The Spirit of God Himself. So the coming of the new covenant is the coming of the age of the Spirit. The role of the Spirit is to empower us to begin to live in accordance with with the law of God, to desire it and to be able to do it. Now, Paul writes, just let me refresh your memory. Turn back to chapter 8. It's been a long time since we were there, I know, but go back to chapter 8. Turn back to the left a few pages. Verses 3 and 4, chapter 8. Paul writes there that that we fulfill the righteous requirement of the law when we walk by the, who? By the Spirit. Chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, that is when it resided on tablets, tablets of stone, 
It was unable to transform a human heart. God did. The law couldn't do. God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Here it is. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the who? Spirit. We walk according to the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit Himself is the one who brings the new covenant and makes it effectual in the hearts and minds of His people. We walk by the Spirit. What does that mean? What does that look like? Let your eyes drop down a little. This is all review, by the way. Verses 12 and 14, 12 through 14, chapter 8. What does it mean? So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if, here it is, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. When we, in dependence upon the Spirit of God, refuse sin and say yes to the righteousness of God, then we, by the Spirit's empowerment, fulfill the law of God that has been written where? Talk to me, where? On our hearts. By the power of my own strength and initiative? No, by the power of who? Spirit of God Himself, who dwells within me. This is the gospel, by the way. This is the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is what it means. It's a it's a duty to walk by the Spirit and thus fulfill the law of God. Back to chapter 13. So when we, in those instances, when we actually love someone... In that moment in time, in the power of the Spirit, we are actually loving someone. We have at that moment in time fulfilled the law. We are fulfilling the law that God has written within us. That's what Paul's saying here back in verse 8. For he who loves his neighbor has done what? Let your eyes go there, verse 8. Don't miss it. He who loves his neighbor has done what? He has fulfilled the law. In that moment, he has fulfilled the law. So love is required of us. Verse 8, it's a debt and it's a duty. Second life-changing statement here, verses 9 and 10. Love is regulatory. Love is required and love is regulatory. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that love regulates our relationships with other people. Love regulates how we relate to other people. It defines how we are to relate to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our schoolmates, to the person at the grocery store, to anyone that God brings us into contact with. Love regulates the relationship. What does it mean to love someone? Okay, I, I got it. I'm, I'm supposed to love, but, but what does it mean? What does it look like? How do I do it? It's interesting, isn't it, verse 9, how Paul answers the question. He turns where? Take a look at the text. Where does he turn? That's right. He goes to the Ten Commandments. Verse 9, for this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. 
And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul turns to the Ten Commandments to define law. Or, excuse me, to define love. And he quotes the 7th, the 6th, the 8th, and the 10th. And he does so to provide some very specific, some very tangible ways in which love regulates our relationships. He finishes it up, by the way, after quoting these four commandments from the second table of the Decalogue. He quotes it, or he he ends it with Leviticus 19.18, which kind of summarizes it all up and says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there are these four specific items that he has given to you, and then he sweeps it all up and says, just love your neighbor as yourself. It's exactly the way Jesus handled it too. You remember? It's exactly the way Jesus handled it. He gave some specific examples and he said, I just, it's all swept up in this one. Just love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we might quickly read over verse 9. Okay, I need to love my neighbor. Got it. It's, it's my debt. It's my duty. Spirit's motivating me. I want to do it. Okay, don't commit adultery. Okay, I haven't committed adultery. <clears throat> not mur- well, I haven't murdered any of my neighbors. I've been tempted, but I haven't. Shall not, you know, the guy's got, please loud me. <clears throat> right? You don't steal. I didn't take his lawnmower out of his garage when he left the door open all night. And I don't covet. No, I don't really want his house. Great. I loved him. Is that it? Is it that simple? <sighs> Not so. Not so at all. See, I think what Paul would have us do here is the same thing that Jesus would have us do. It's to look down inside the commandments The commandments are spiritual. They are spiritual commandments. They are not merely statements of external manifestation. We're not good because we say, I didn't steal, I didn't murder, I didn't commit adultery. Boom, I'm good. Not not even close. Jesus said that the heart of the issue are the issues of the heart, right? Right? For it's out of the heart that flow all kinds of wicked thoughts and ultimately behaviors. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. See, it's easy when we talk about loving people to, to descend into kind of pli- or pious platitudes or, or kind of a sentimental hypocrisy. Oh, I'm a loving person. Oh, let me give you a hug. I love you. You know. And that's it. That's it. I think what Jesus did and what Paul would have us do, because all Paul's doing here is is basically picking up the teaching of Jesus and rolling it into his argument. What he'd have us do is look deep, look inside. What is the spirit of the commandments? The seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. What lies behind adultery, according to Jesus? Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, right? Verses 27 to 32. What motivates, what lies behind the external manifestation of adultery? Come on, you know the answer to this. Talk to me. Lust. For if you even look at a woman to lust after her, you have done what? You have committed adultery. Oh, wow. 
Oh, wow. Now he's taken it down to a whole new level, hasn't he? It's no longer just externalized. It's no longer just behaviors. It's no longer just a checklist. Do this, do this, do this, and you're good. Now your heart's torn wide open, and you look inside, and it's dark. It's black. We're guilty. I mean, honestly, when you think about it, to lust after another person is about as far from loving them as you can get. No longer are they a human being. They're an object to fulfill your perverted desires. That's, that's the bottom line. We don't love them. We want them and we want to use them to satisfy our own twisted desires. What lies behind murder? Come on. Anger. Anger. What lies behind stealing? Greed. What lies behind coveting? It is a, it is a materialism that is never satisfied with what God has provided us. See, all of these go from out here where you can check them off. You know, we're all nice people. We just check it off. Drives it down deep. It rips the heart wide open. And all of a sudden you go, ugh. I'm so far from loving people. It's not even funny. The Word of God is like a searchlight. It just peers into the deepest recesses of our heart and, and says to us, You have a debt to love. You have a duty to love. It's to be a tangible, active love. And you don't love. You don't love. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. said positively, love does good to people. It does good to people. It seeks their benefit. We're to love them, he says, as you love yourself. Benefit may be material. It it may be spiritual. But but in any case, it's required of us to slow down and love people. Really love them. By the way, who is my neighbor? Let's just clarify that. Who is my neighbor? What would Jesus, how would he answer that question? Luke 10. Anyone whom God brings across your path and is in need at that moment in time, he is your neighbor. He is your neighbor. We have an active love. Love does no wrong. That is, love does good. Verse 10, to a neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. Do not lust after your neighbors. Do not be angry with your neighbors and murder them in your heart. Do not allow your greed to latch on to your neighbors. Do not covet or desire what God has provided to them. Wow, it's all just ramped way up here. Way up here. 
By the way, this is the, this is the core of the Old Testament law. This is really what it's about. All those rules, all those regulations. This is really what it is about. Interpersonal relations. Loving one another. Paul ends his, his statements here, his treatment of loving our neighbors here in verse 10. But I don't want to end here. I don't want to end here. And the reason I don't want to end here is because I don't love people like that. I don't love people like that. And you know what? Beyond that, I can't love people like that. And beyond that, you know what? Neither can you. You don't love like that and you can't love like that. Not in our own strength. I can't walk out of here this morning and and say, oh, I've been convicted. I need to love more. I'm going to go home and I'm going to love more. doesn't work that way. See, this is really the third life-changing statement we have to bring to bear on all of this. That love is reliant upon Christ. Love is reliant upon Christ. Love is required. Love is regulatory. But, but ultimately, love is, re- is reliant upon Jesus Christ Himself. What do I mean by that? What I mean is the gospel. We need the gospel. We read these verses and we stop to give serious consideration to these verses and it needs to drive us back all the way to the cross of Jesus Christ. Is this our only hope? It is our only hope. The unregenerate human heart is a place of hostility, not a place of love. Paul says it himself in Romans 8, verse 7. The mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Let's get real. We don't love people, and it's not within us to to love people. We need transformation in order to love. And even then, we mess it up. Why? It's, it's because of the blackness that lies within. It's because of who we really are. We need God to show His love toward us, right? For God demonstrated His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. He died for us. He died in our place, He, he took our place. The guilt that is ours, He carried in Himself. He was punished for our sin. And His righteousness is now reckoned to us. It is now attributed to us by God Himself. We become in a faith union with Jesus Christ, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, new creations in Christ. We become new. That which was once impossible and in which we had no interest for now becomes possible. And now we have an interest for. We do want to love. It's, it's not perfect, I know. But it's there. It's, it's there at least in its 
seed form. We've been given the gift of righteousness by faith. The Spirit of God now dwells within us. Isn't that true? According to Galatians 5, chapter 22, the fruit of the Spirit is, number one, love. Oh, well, maybe that's a clue. Maybe that's a clue. It's the Spirit's work in me that enables me to love. It's as I walk in the Spirit that I begin to love. It's as I submit myself to the Word of God that I begin to love. It's as I turn my back on my old habits and turn towards the new in faltering steps of faith, but steps nevertheless that I begin to love. It activates the Spirit of God within who's within us to will and to work for His good pleasure. See, it's all back to the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way, Galatians chapter 2. Turn over there, turn to the right. Page 1165. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. See, we have two ways to go when we take seriously Paul's words here in Romans chapter 13. We can deceive ourselves into thinking, I just need to do better. I got it, Pastor. Now I understand what you're telling me. Go home and do better. Go home and do better is not a Christian message. Okay? It's not a Christian message. The Christian's message is to understand that you cannot do better. It is to give yourself in faith to Christ. And then begin to act in response to the gospel. Call out on the Spirit of God to help you, to help me. Beloved, the gospel saves. Is that right? Not just in the past. Rudy, the gospel didn't just save you two years ago, whatever it was, right? The gospel saves you every day. The gospel saves me every day. I need to continue to believe it. I need to continue to depend upon it. I need to continue to act in faith in response to it. And as I do, God has promised me, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that He will bring about that which He has predestined to occur. That is that I am going to become like Jesus Christ. Now, did that man live? And excuse me, did that man love? Did he? Supremely. Supremely he loved. 
And as we in faith begin to embrace the gospel, preaching it to ourselves, reminding us of the reality of it, believing it and acting upon it, God is at work through His Spirit who indwells us to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ and we will begin to love as He loved. And Paul says when we do that, we fulfill the law. We fulfill the law. I invite you this morning. I invite you to believe the gospel. Be reminded of that old, old story. Preach it again to yourself. Affirm its truth again and again and again. And maybe some this morning here, there is no again because there's never been a first time. Perhaps this morning in the sound of my voice, there is one here this morning who has never yet called out to Christ to save them. Oh, beloved, today is the day. Today is the day. Turn from your sin. Flee to the cross of Jesus Christ. By faith, embrace Him and call out on Him to save you. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, that if we will confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord, believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. That gift and that invitation is yours this morning. Call out on Christ. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we... We call out upon you to be merciful to us. Because, O oh Lord, we are in desperate need of mercy. Every one of us here this morning, we need the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. We do not love our Father as we should. We cannot love as we must. We beg of you to grant us your grace. Help us to believe, to affirm those truths that you have given to us here in your word, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. O oh Lord, Grant us faith this morning to cling on to that truth. And then, O oh Lord, in the week that now stretches out, we will meet people, neighbors, friends, schoolmates, strangers. O oh Lord, we want to love them. Help us to love them. For Jesus' sake, amen.